Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Episode 66 of the Intercooler podcast is all about Ferrari. I was thinking about this, Andrew, given that you, you really love that that mark don't you particularly the racing side of the company we haven't really i think we've done one episode dedicated to ferrari but that's about it not many yeah and that was and that was a while back i think yeah um so this is obviously on the back of the launch of the 296 gtb yeah um which uh was unveiled to the world last thursday um very interesting car uh lots to be said about that and also i think uh, I think we are going to have a bit of a sort of slight techno spod dive into V6 <laughs> yeah. and V angles and V everything. And so uh, yeah, looking forward to it. All that good stuff. Yeah. So we'll get underway with the 296 GTB, um, a new mid-engine supercar. Now, I know a lot of people will be thinking, another one. Um, and it does seem as though <clears throat> out of Marinello, we're, we're getting lots of uh, new derivatives, lots of model updates endlessly. Uh, but this is actually a clean sheet, all new mid-engine supercar. And is it? <clears throat> is it well, though? Okay, go on. What, what do you propose? Do you, the, the, apparently, there's no F8 carryover. Is that right? They say there's no F8 carryover, um, but um, they say it's much closer related to the SF90, um, which 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 makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think I, th- I think that we journalists tend to think of these things as sort of fairly binary terms that you have a platform and you spin cars off it and then you have another and in fact particularly when you're in low volume particularly when you're dealing with um you know aluminium space frames designs you can just evolve stuff and you can evolve it to a point where it is unrelated to what it began as uh, and so you can say it's a new thing um so I, I think it is a bit of a a bit of a red herring to say that it's you know it's based on the same platform as as, as anything really but it's certainly much closer related to the sf90 than it is to the to the F8 Tributor, at least according to the Ferrari press conference, which I, I, I attended virtually um, on Thursday afternoon. Good point. Yeah, a, good, a point worth making. I suppose we saw something similar with Aston Martin, didn't we? The old VH platform. It actually evolved quite a lot over, the, over time, but its origins were, were back in you know, the, the original Vanquish, wasn't it? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we're talking about Ferrari. 
so let's run through some of the details of this new 296 GTB because it is, it is a very interesting car from a technological point of view. Um, it's got a 3-litre V6 uh, twin turbo. It's a very wide-angle V6. We'll come back to that. Um, also a hybrid. It's a plug-in hybrid. Um, the power output is just absolutely astonishing to me. I, d- I remember, so we, we reported on it last week on Instagram and on the app. Um, and when you sent through your copy, I just thought, well, that has to be a mistake, doesn't it? <laughs> Eight, 819 brake horsepower. From um, a three litre. From a three litre. I mean, you wrote, didn't you, that Ferrari is clearly in no mood to bow out of the horsepower race. But actually, it's getting, it seems to be growing exponentially, doesn't it? Power I mean, output I, seems to I be mean, rocketing. I, I, I did look back at it a bit, uh, and obviously that 818, 819 horsepower is with the hybrid added. But even without the hybrid, there is a three litre engine producing 654 horsepower, which is just nuts, isn't it? And I was looking back over Ferraris, and the only time I can see a similar gain from one generation to the next is when the 599 became the F12. And then I think it went from 620 to 740 horsepower from memory. So that's about the same because, um, you know, if you think that an F8 Tributo has, what, 710 and this has got 890. So, so, so it's about the same sort of, it's about the same sort of leap. Um, but yeah, they're not giving up, are they? Yes, <clears throat> it's staggering. And people like us have been saying for so long, they're too powerful now. They're too, and they're getting more and more and more powerful. It's extraordinary. Um, this one is rear-wheel drive only. So all that power through a pair of boots. 15-mile um, electric-only range, and it'll do 80-something miles an hour electric-only. I think that's pretty clever, actually. Um, you wrote something recently on, on the app and on the Instagram site about downforce uh, and, and road cars, effectively saying... Don't buy into all those figures that are quoted, but I'm going to quote some to you anyway. 360 kilograms of downforce at 155 miles an hour okay. with the Assetto Fiorano pack. Yeah. Um, so that's a substantial amount, but it's not it's not full hypercar territory, is it really? Which is to be no, expected. And at that speed, um, you know, if you extrapolate backwards, that's probably not enough to require a spring rate that's going to ruin your ride. That's the key thing, isn't it? They, yeah. haven't, gone, they haven't ramped up the downforce so much that no. they have, have to give it all that support with solid springs. Um, okay, dry weight with lightweight options, 1,470 kilograms. Uh, so without the lightweight options at the curb, you're looking at 1,600 plus, um, which is sort of reasonable for a, a hybrid with a, a decent-sized battery. It, it is, it is, it is, it is. For a hybrid, you see you've already qualified it, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... It, what, okay, what interests me is, you know, so that's 40. So all these weights I'm going to talk about are, I call them cheat weights because they're not in a, in a spec that anyone's ever going to drive a car. But, you know, it's not just Ferrari who quote dry weights. Now McLaren do it too, and I think some others as well. So, you know, it, it's all comparable. So an SF90 is 1570 dry with all the lightweight options, okay? Remove the front axle drive, make the V8 a V6 and call it a 296 GTB. And, that, and you save 100 kilos there, which is 100 kilograms. I mean, that's a lot of weight. But even so, despite having a V6 rather than a V8, the car is still, I'm just trying to remember now, 130 kilograms heavier than an F8 Tributo. Yeah. 
114. I, th I think an FH review to is 1330 dry. So, you know, you're still adding 10%. Mm. You know? And the, and the other thing, okay, uh, the other little calculation I did was, you know, take a McLaren 720S, which is quite an old car now, and put that into full lightweight trim, okay? That comes in at under 1300 dry. Yeah, 1293, I think, okay? Compared to 1470 for the 296GTB. Okay, now, if you look at the specs, you'll see that the McLaren has 710 horsepower and, then the, and the Ferrari has 819. So there seems to be really quite a distance apart. But the moment you actually produce a power-to-weight ratio, it's like this. Yeah. There's nothing between them. And what would you rather have? A lightweight car with a bit less power or a heavyweight car with quite a lot more power? Um, and I think that you and I, probably a lot of people listening to this, would you know, would go down one road. And I suspect that the sort of person who's going to be interested in you know, telling people how much power their car's got, um, we'll go down another. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? You can't look at these things in isolation. It's not just how much power they've got, it's how much weight that power has to tow to. That's the only way that will give you a full, proper understanding of the way this car is likely to perform. Um, we can only speculate at the moment, but what do you think a 296 GTB engine would be like without the hybrid drive, given it's producing more than 200 um, horsepower per litre? It's ah, so heavily okay. turbocharged. That's the thing, okay? That's where the hybrid is actually... I'm going to about to spring <laughs> yeah. to the defence of the hybrid because you think to yourself, wow, I mean, you know, you know, how light would it be without all that stuff? And it would still have 654 horsepower um, in a much lighter car. That's just going to be a better car, isn't it? However, the reason the internal combustion engine can develop that kind of power is because you've got the hybrid filling all the gaps. Because otherwise, without the hybrid torque to fill you know if you're going to have a normally sorry, if you're going to have a turbocharged engine producing 650 horsepower for three liters it's going to be peaky and this thing rests to eight and a half thousand revs which means it's going to be pretty unresponsive off boost um which would be horrible except it's not because you just get the hybrid to do that for you and that's where it's clever that's why you can get that's why you can actually get these huge jumps in power because what you're losing by doing it, you're putting back with the hybrid at the bottom end. So, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I have seen someone saying, oh, just get rid, get rid of the hybrid. It's, it's not that simple because mm. the car would probably mm. be horrible to drive. That's right. Yeah, it's worth pointing out, isn't it? Yeah. All these dry weights, they do make me laugh. Man, lots of manufacturers do it now. And yeah. just as a rule of thumb, you and I tend to add about 100 kilograms. Actually, it, it might have to be a little bit more than that, maybe 120 kilograms well, or something. That's 100 kilograms to get from dry to curb. But to get from dry and then with all the lightweight options fitted. So, you know, and that can be really, really lightweight. So, so, you know, it might be ceramic brakes. It might be, you know, carbon wheels. Yeah. There are all sorts of things, you know, carbon, bits of carbon bodywork. You know, you can take, I mean, I think the Assetto Fiorano pack on an SF90 is about 90 kilograms like we take yeah, about 90 kilograms. So, you know, if, so, you know, that's like 200 kilograms there from dry to curb and from Assetto Fiorano to, you know, so, you know, if you've got the weight of an Assetto Fiorano SF90 with all lightweight op options, dry, is probably 200 kilograms less than the weight of an SF90 just parked in a showroom with nothing on it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it is extraordinary. And manufacturers will keep on quoting figures this way. And all we can do is keep on 
highlighting what actually the the real world curb weight is likely to be. Yes, um, and what, as long as as long as manufacturers are consistently unrealistic in the way that they quote their figures, the figures remain comparable. So you know, kind of that's kind of fine, isn't it? Yeah, it is kind of fine. What cracks me up is when manufacturers quote a power to weight ratio using the dry figure. Um, because actually a car with no fluids or, or fuel doesn't produce any power, power. at all. <laughs> it's, so it's naught horsepower per tonne, isn't it? Yes. Um, okay, so a little bit more on the 296 GTB. Why 296? Have you got your head around that yet? Yes, I've got it because they can't, they can't name it after an old Peugeot. <laughs> yeah, so it should be 306. It should be 306. Um, and some people have said, oh, yes, that's because, like, you know, with the, you know, the 911 when it came out was a 901, then, then Peugeot forced them to make it a 911. Now, you know, in Ferrari nomenclature, um, that hasn't been the case because obviously they had a 208 and a 308 in the past. Mm. Um, but the point being was that the 208 and the 308 Ferraris came before the 208 and the 308 Peugeots. So they weren't naming it after a Peugeot. Mm. Ferrari 306. <laughs> it just doesn't have the ring to it. So although the, the engine displaces 2992cc, so it's absolutely closer to 3 litres than 2.9, mm. they have decided for the sake of naming. Also, there was a 296S race car. Mm, so that helps. Um, whereas there's never been a 306 race car. Um, so it's, it's a much more Ferrari uh, title. And given that you know, everybody plays fast and loose with their naming things these days. You know, you know, Mercedes with their 63s and their 43s and their 50 and everything else. You know, it's fine. It's fine. It doesn't trouble me at all. Yeah, yeah it's not really that important, is it? No. Um, so there will be a 296 GTB Assetto Fiorano. It's just an upgrade package, really. But there's some quite cool stuff in there. You, you get Multimatic shock absorbers, um, presumably race style um, suspension. That's pretty cool. Um, more aero kit. Uh, a Lexan rear screen to save weight, uh, a bit more carbon fiber. Uh, you can also have, um, there was something else. No, maybe there was, oh no, you can have those Cup 2R tires that we, yeah. we've spoken about before, haven't we? And so when, when they quote a lap time around Fiorano, that's the same as an F12 TDF and half a second faster than a Pista. Uh, I mean, that, <laughs> that is staggeringly quick. Uh, a huge amount of that will be in those super sticky tires. Um, Okay, we reckon about £230,000 to drive, to, to buy, excuse me. Uh, and very clear nod, isn't there, in terms of styling to the 250LM. Um, yeah, those rear, rear haunches. Yeah, yeah. Rear haunches with the air intakes on top. Yeah. What do you think of the way the car looks generally? I like it. I like it. Um, it's, I don't think people have said, oh, it's, you know, it's the best looking Ferrari since the 458. Um, I, th- I think I'd go along with that because I don't think it's as good looking as a 458. When I remember the 458 came out, I was just like, wow. Um, whereas with this one, I'm going, yeah, that's nice. But I'm not getting that sort of gut emotional response to it. I'm not looking at, looking at it and thinking, that is gorgeous. I'm looking at it and thinking, that's a really polished, well-executed job. They've done a nice job with that. Um, so I think it, I think it looks good. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of um, getting that deep emotional reaction to it. Ferrari did say, didn't they, when the Monzas were new, those screenless cars, uh, the one and the two-seater versions, that that more classically beautiful, restrained, sort of curvaceous design would influence the, the forthcoming Ferrari production cars. And it has done. The Roma is true to that. The SF90 and now this 296, they're, they're simpler, they're cleaner, they're purer. But you can p- compare it to an F8, which is very angular, very busy design um i think i prefer the way that they've 
that they're going now, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't know. No, you mean, I mean, the F8 is obviously the ultimate evolution of the 458 design. That's right. I think a lot of the original beauty of the 458 was lost with the 488 and then with, with the F8. And I think that you're now at a point where, although I don't prefer the 296 GTB to the 458, I think I do prefer it to the F8. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they got so busy with... I mean, that, that car has been around for 12 years or something, and they got so yeah, busy has. with the design over, over the years, didn't they? Yeah. Um, okay, before we go any further, I just want to talk about the Intercooler app briefly. Um, and this is very on topic, because <laughs> just today, as we're recording this, Peter Robinson has written an article for the app all about getting banned from Ferrari for life twice. Um, twice. We think We think he's the only person to, to hold that distinction. Um, so it's just a fun story about what happens, or particularly back in the, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, what happens as a journalist when you go to Fiorano to test a car and you give an honest opinion to your audience. What, how, how, how does do Ferrari, or did Ferrari back then, take it with good grace, good humour, or... Not. <laughs> uh, not is probably the, the answer there. I, 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 yeah, I, I, think it, I think it is very much um, a sort of tale of its times, isn't it? Um, and I, th- I think the other thing I would say, although Peter was banned for life twice, um, by the time he finally left living in Italy, where he had lived, for, um, you know, he was on fantastic, fantastically good terms with them. And him and Luca de Monsterni, you know, Peter is far too modest to say that they were good friends, but they were. Um, so although you know not, not only was he banned for lies twice he was let back in twice as well so um, it's just it's just it's just a great story and, and, and he's always Peter's been a bit sort of reticent about telling it because I think I don't think Peter is particularly the sort of person who likes sort of doing these sort of self-indulgent there I was type pieces uh, I love doing them um, but Peter is you know he he, he, he he regards himself as a sort of industry reporter um, but I'm just really really pleased that we managed to persuade him to do it because it, you know it is it's a really really good read uh, and it's and it's really it provides a proper insight into the way that things you know used to be um, with that particular bit of the motor industry you know way back when yeah that's right back then it, it was the case that if you said something critical about their cars the people at ferrari would be hurt by that they yeah would take it as a personal insult it's extraordinary somebody um, somebody did once say to me and again this was a long time ago and nobody is anywhere near the company now but somebody did once turn around to me and say andrew i thought we were friends yeah <laughs> Wow, it's remarkable, isn't it? Different time. Uh, okay, elsewhere on the app over the last few days, I've driven the Aston Martin Vantage F1 edition. That's the safety car one. Um, it's also the Vantage, I think, that the Vantage should have been all along. It's, it's fantastic. Um, elsewhere, we've written about our first cars. So nine or ten of us wrote about our first cars. There's some good stories in there. Joe, our, our engineer, Joanna Fidalgo, has been writing about the 90s. She reckons that was the a golden era for for the automobile and she makes a good a good case andrew you wrote a really cool piece about it's effectively the typical maiden race weekend and anyone who has raced will remember their first weekend and read that article and go yep 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 did that <laughs> yeah that, I, yeah I, I remember that uh, because yeah. i think it's such an intimidating thing, isn't it? It's a horrifying experience. It, it is awful. And in that moment when you're on the grid for the first time, you would do anything to be anywhere else. Anywhere else. Yeah. And but yet... then the instant, the instant the, the lights go out, 
Yeah, it's, it's it's an extraordinary thing. It's it's, it's a. I mean, not that I, not that I wrote this, but I've always regarded it as a very interesting insight into the way that the human brain works. How you can, despite you knowing exactly what's going to happen, how your emotions can swing so totally in such a short period of time from absolute fear, dread, and loathing to total euphoria when nothing surprising has happened. When what has happened is exactly what you expected to happen all along. Um, and yet suddenly, yeah, and, and you sort of wonder whether you kind of even know yourself because the person that you feel you are one minute after the race has started doesn't recognise the person you were two minutes ago. The, 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 the terrified, uh, timid, cowardly person quaking in the car waiting for the lights to go. You know, um, And I've always been fascinated by that. And because... Although I've done, you know, I've done a number of hundreds of races now, I still get it a bit. Yeah, I don't, yeah I've yeah. never lined up on. Sometimes, if it's if you're doing a long distance race and you know, and it's the middle of the race and someone comes down the pit lane, you get in the car and off you go. That's fine. But there is something uniquely terrifying about the start of a motor race um, when you're all there together <laughs> and no one's moving and the revs are rising and you don't know what's going to happen and you're just hoping you get through the first corner in one piece. There is, it's certainly in everything that I do, there is, you know, there is nothing more, I suppose, focusing um, than that. And, and once it goes well, nothing more brilliant. But um, yeah, anyway, take a look. Um, I enjoyed writing it and um, hopefully if you have raced, uh, it will resonate with you. And if you haven't, I don't know whether it will persuade you to go and race or not. It'll it'll certainly push you one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a brilliant piece. Go and read it. So download the Intercooler app. Just search the Intercooler in whichever app store you use. You'll find it. Uh, start your free trial. You've got a one-month free trial. Um, and see what you think. We think you'll like it. Uh, okay, enough app stuff. Let's get back to Ferrari. Now, wh- one of the interesting things is that Ferrari has made it quite clear. And it's it's intentionally moved to make it as clear as it can that the, the 296 is not replacing the F8, the V8 range, um, which seems a slightly odd thing to say. So the, the F8 will carry on for a little while, apparently. We don't know how long for. What do you think is going on here? Are they uh, fulfilling orders and they don't want the F8 to seem like an old car, or are they actually going to coexist? I, well, I mean, don't forget, let's not forget the F8 is the facelift of the facelift, isn't it? Um, and Ferrari's never done that before, so... Um, my guess is that the F8 was created to fill the gap between what would have been the natural end of that line of car and the arrival of the hybrid. Um, and I don't know, you know, Ferrari's adamant that it is entirely additional too. But then again, if you had a load of F8s you still needed to sell, that's what you would say, isn't it? Um, so my, my guess is that the F8 um, in both Tributo and Spider form will around for a bit it's interesting isn't it that they haven't done a pista you know it's the first of those cars you know from way back at the 360 you know they've always done a special one uh, and they haven't with the f8 and i think i read a bit into that into you know what its likely longevity is um so and also you know if you just look at the way the world is going um you know you're gonna have to have a hybrid fairly shortly so you know a year or two um i wouldn't i wouldn't back it beyond that could i just talk sf90 for a second it is directly relevant to to this conversation. When I drove the SF90, and however impressed I was by its power and its poise, and, 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 and it is in very many ways an extremely impressive car, what I thought at the time, and indeed what I wrote at the time, was how much better it would be if it didn't have a driven front axle. 
so it was lighter and cheaper um, and also had a boot which allowed you to actually go somewhere in it because an SF90 just doesn't. Um, and so now we have the 296 GTB, which is literally, which is that car. You know, it doesn't have a driven front axle. It is lighter. It does have a boot. You will be able to go places in it. And yet both cars will have a level of performance you can't use on a public road. And once you factor in the additional weight of the SF90, their power-to-weight ratios of the SF90 and the 296 GTB, they're, I mean, they're still a distance apart. There's like 60, 70 horsepower apart, but you know they're not absolutely worlds apart. Um, and you can buy a 296 GTB for, we think, £230,000, basic. I think an SF90 is £375,000. So what are you actually buying if you spend another... 140, 150,000 pounds on an SF90. You're buying a car which in the real world isn't going to be any quicker. But you're going to be buying a car which is heavier and which is far, far, far less usable because you can't go on holiday in it. You can't go away in it. And I just wonder what that car's for now. I don't know. I mean, I haven't driven a 296 GTB, so, you know, I'm going to have to reserve judgment. But, you know, to me, if I was looking at, you know, oh, of course, okay, who's it for? It's for people who like telling people they drive a car with a thousand horsepower. And if you and if you want a thousand horsepower, it's still cheap, you know, because you know if you want to buy a thousand horsepower, you've got to go, you know, you've got to go and buy something utterly ridiculous, um, costing millions. So, you know, for the sort of, you know, for the sort of the armchair enthusiasts and the, you know and 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 the barroom jockeys who like, you know, who, who define the brilliance of their car by the amount of power its engine can provide, then I guess it has a point. But to anybody who actually is interested in driving and using their cars, you know, bear in mind too, the SF90 is not a limited production car. So it's not a collector's car. Um, It's not like a LaFerrari or something, which has a whole other reason for people wanting to buy it. Um, I I, I struggle. I really do. I'm I'm not dissing the car because it does remarkable things, but... You know, just on paper, looking at the 296 GTB, I mean, I haven't seen a better reason for someone not to buy an SF90. <laughs> and save a lot of money. It's an interesting point. I suppose for decades, manufacturers like Ferrari, they had a very clear model hierarchy and they knew where each car sat and what each one was for. But nowadays, as horsepower figures, because of hybrid drive, as they rocket, the, the hierarchies are becoming a bit jumbled up and Certain models are treading on the toes of other ones. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but they do need to be very careful not to, you know, not to shoot themselves in the foot by giving their, their more affordable models too much power. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. Um, okay, so you've spoken about the SF90. We said we'd talk about the rest of Ferrari's model range and just sort of a bit of a state of the nation address on where its, its lineup is at at the moment. So at the top, um, we've got the 812. And we know there's the new Competizione model coming. 812 is a sensational car. The, <laughs> the drop-top GTS is it's the only one I've driven, but wow. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, um, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. And exactly what a, v- a V12 Ferrari should be. Uh, elsewhere, we've got the Roma and the Portofino M. Um, I've driven the Portofino M recently. You've driven the Roma. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think you liked the, the Coupe, didn't you? I did. I really liked the Roma, yeah. I, you know, I think it's a... It's a fantastically well-judged car. Um, you know, this is Ferrari doing sensible, practical, yet still visceral and emotional. Um, uh, I mean, th- there are really few boxes that car doesn't tick. 
because it's quiet and it's comfortable and it's a great GT, but it's also handles very well. It's beautifully balanced. Um, uh, it's got a great interior and um, it's stunning. I just love the look of the thing. I think the Roma is a fantastic looking car. Agreed. Yeah, the the Portofino M, I drove it recently and it's a it's a big improvement, particularly over the Californias. It's so much better to drive than a California T as a sporting car. Um, it's it's not the one I would choose. It's still pretty compromised by having... Um, it's 100 kilograms heavier than the Roma with which it shares a powertrain and, and a platform. Um, and you feel it. It is there. Actually, the what really struck me is when you particularly when you're stationary and you raise and lower the roof, as it comes down and drops onto the header rail, it lands with a thump and it rattles the car. And when it goes back into the boot, again, it lands with a thump and the whole car goes... And you think, crikey, that's a lot of weight moving around there. Even so, it's it's much better to drive than earlier versions of that that series. But but the end, but I actually thought I was was very pleasantly surprised by by just the standard Portofino when I drove that. Yeah, yeah, you can you can hoof it along a road, and it's pretty good. It, it doesn't feel as compromised as as earlier versions. Um, so yeah, fine, but great, and it serves a purpose that car. Um, so that's the the model lineup as it is at the moment. But we know there's much more coming. Controversially, uh, next year we'll see what we're currently calling the Puro Sang, which is Ferrari's first SUV. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a slightly troubling thought, isn't it? I mean, there's that, and um, yeah, and also we should mention also the electric car that's going to come after. Of that. course. Um, yeah. uh, and what I'm trying to do now is get through these cars quite quickly because I'm trying to engineer in a bit of time to talk about V6 angles. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I think the I think the point with these cars are, you know, Ferrari is now a publicly owned company. Yeah. Um, As of so. 2015 as of 2015 um or a lot of it is a publicly owned company so they are now accountable to shareholders um whereas in the past they were accountable well to fit to the agnelli family and to themselves um which meant they could do pretty much what they wanted but now you know they have to provide shareholder value and how do you provide shareholder value you sell you provide shareholder value by making more cars and selling them for more money you become a more profitable business and that's how you satisfy your shareholders you know what i find um, you know when i was growing up and, and maybe actually even when you um were born and uh you know there were there were three ferraris you know there was a um there was a litland it was either a dino or a 308 and then there was a luxury one so it was a you know a 400 or a 456 um and there was a fast one, which was a Testarossa or a 550 Marinello or whatever. And that was it. Three cars. Look at it now. Um, and, you know, and I understand absolutely the reason for doing it, because it wouldn't be a very good public company if it didn't provide... It wouldn't be a very successful public company, you know, um, if it didn't provide value to its shareholders. And, and although the IPO did have quite a rocky start, um, you know, Ferrari has done extremely well. Um, on the back of this um, philosophy ever since but it does make it a very different company you know it is not the company of Luca de Montezemolo anymore um, which was very pure and very focused on producing cars that were absolutely the embodiment of what people thought the Ferrari brand should represent which is not an SUV and it's not an electric car 
Um, but, you know, the world's a different place and Ferrari's a different company. Yeah, that's right. Look at the ones then, Mello, was like the guardian of the old Ferrari values. Yeah. Um, and, and now we're in a different age. That's right. It's a different world. It's a public company now. And it's, it actually exists for a slightly different purpose. Okay, fine. Let, but let's talk about V6s. Yay! Okay. <laughs> let's do it. If you're watching this on YouTube in particular, we'll do the hand gestures for you. So we'll do a narrow angle V6. We'll do a 90 degree V6. And a 120-degree V6, which is getting towards a flat, almost boxer engine. So we know the, the, the new 296 GTB has got a 120-degree V8. So very V6, excuse me. So a very wide, open one. Yeah. Um, and that's, it, it's an unusual configuration, but we're seeing it a bit more these days. Well, it's a, in road cars, it's a pretty much an unheard of configuration. And then suddenly, three have turned up all at once. Um, so the McLaren Artura. The new V6 in that is a 120-degree V6. The Aston Martin V6 engine, which has now been canned, but was going to power pretty much everything going forward for them, uh, that was a 120-degree V6. And now this new Ferrari engine is a 120-degree V6. So the question is why? Okay, so the 120-degree V6 has several advantages. Because opposing pistons can share the same crank pins, what you have is a very short, very stiff, very compact engine. Um, you can, it also can rev higher than a conventional 60-degree V6, um, and so you can get more power out of it. So why weren't they all like that? Well, the problem is most V6 engines uh, in road cars have gone in the nose. And the problem is once you have an engine that is that wide it gets in the way of your suspension and it ruins your steering lock. So it only really works in a mid-engine car. Fine. But why hasn't it been in mid-engine cars? Because until now, mid-engine cars have been exotic things which have V8s and V10s and V12s in them. So there's been no place for these engines. But now in the age of downsizing, where you have the need for a, a small engine, but it can still go behind you, it suddenly makes sense in a way that it never did. Because you know, not only is it shorter and stiffer and stronger and everything else and is able to develop more power, there's space between the V to put your turbos, which means you get that optimal hot V configuration, which means your turbos um, get going and uh, it's great for, for power and for emissions. Um, it lowers the center of gravity too, because it's obviously, it's a much lower engine. I mean, it's just a, it's just a win-win-win all the way through, um, which is why we are seeing them today. So my question to you is how many other V6 configurations have there been? Yeah. Uh, really Ferrari or, or generally any, um, any manufacturer. Okay, okay. okay, so what's the narrowest one you can think of? Well, there are some that they're so narrow, aren't they? They Like a VR6. Yes, like exactly. The, the, the VR6. Yes. And they basically share a head, don't they? Yeah, they, 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 sit, they sit on the same head. So I think they were between like sort of 10 and 15 degrees. Um, and of course it still exists under the bonnet of a Bentley, which is, you know, the W12 Bentley engine is effectively two VR6s um, sitting on a common crank. Um, normal V6 is 60 degrees, um, but, well, we'll come back to the 65 degree V6 in a minute. Uh, <laughs> My God, we're going um, deep. <laughs> so, uh, and then there are some weird ones. I assume you did a 75 degree V6. Uh, I think GM did a 54 degree V6 uh, and the uh, the wonderful McLaren MP44 um, 
which had that uh, incredible Honda V6 in it, which won 15 races at 16 attempts, had an 80-degree V6. Um, but previous Ferrari V6s have had 65-degree V6s um, angles in them. Um, and they did that because they wanted to um, get a bit more space between the V for bigger carburettors um, and that sort of thing. However, and this is what I want to talk about, um, the 120-degree V6 that Ferrari produces today is not their first 120-degree V6 because 60 years ago, they had just such an engine in the back of their Formula 1 car. Um, and the reason for that is exactly the same reason it's in the back of the 296 GTB today because Ferrari only went to a mid-engine design in 1961, whereas everybody else, all the Coopers and the Lotus, had done it at the back end of the 50s. And it was only then... Once they decided finally that they were going to um, put the engine behind the driver, that they could go to this optimum configuration. And they actually, in 1961, ran three cars with 120 degree V6s in them and one with 65 degrees. And the 120 degree cars were just faster and better. And, um, and they absolutely romped to the championship. I think they did seven rounds and they won all but two of them. And the only two they didn't win were at Monaco and the Nürburgring, which were handling circuits, and Sterling won both of them because he was Sterling. Um, so, yeah, so that's the sort of history of the 120-degree V6 in Ferraris. Um, and, yeah, it's great they're going to be doing another. I've never driven a six-cylinder Ferrari, but then... Oh, you should. Not, not too many people have. So what, what are my options? Dino. Is it a Ferrari? Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> What, what, I mean, you know, it's, 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 you know, to call it anything other than a Ferrari is, is to indulge in sort of badge engineering. It's yeah, a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. No, you're um, right. Fine. Um, it's, okay, it, no, so, so there, there, there were... Um, Ferrari did do some straight sixes um, in racing cars. Um, but in terms of V6s in road cars, uh, there was the 206, which I think came out in 1967. Um, and then there was the 246, which came out in 1969. Um, and that's it. And it's a fantastic engine. It's a wonderful engine. It, it, it sounds like an angry V12. It sounds like a sort of rough and ready, coarse V12. Um, and it's all mechanical because it's got chain-driven camshafts. And it is derived from um, the V6 engine, which Mike Hawthorne won the 1958 Formula 1 World Championship in. That was also a 65-degree V6. Um, so it's a proper engine with you know proper heritage. It sounds wonderful, um, and yeah, if you ever get a chance to go and have a quick run up the road in a in a decent Dino, do it. Mm. Yeah, great. No, I I, I will. Um, so that's that. Well, there you go. We told you we'd go deep on six cylinder Ferrari. Sorry, sorry. I've, <laughs> I've, I've just been you know ever since Ferrari made this announcement last week. I've just been uh, I've just been sort of living these engines. So I just I just felt the need to. Get it off my chest because I knew that you guys, um, if nobody else, would kind of indulge me and bear with me and say thank you. It is interesting, isn't it, that based on the V angle, engines have different characteristics, different qualities. Um, yeah, I find that stuff really interesting. Has anyone ever done a completely flat six? Yes. But that, yeah, but that is still a V, technically a V? Uh, I did... Uh, is the Porsche engine a boxer? Yes. Well, they call it one, don't they? I should really know this stuck in there. It's appalling. <laughs> I, I really should know the answer to this. But because that's where Boxster came from, didn't it? Boxer Roadster. 
it's a portmanteau of those two words. So oh, they, okay. they yeah, certainly... but, but, but yeah, but Ferrari called their flat twelve yeah. car a boxer, and that's definitely yeah. not a boxer. So just because you call it a boxer doesn't make it a boxer. Um, that's appalling knowledge on my part. Uh, there'll be people who, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, I, mm. So there we go. If you do know the answer to that, has there ever been, what are we asking? Has there ever been a 180 degree V6? Well, how many other flat sixes have there been? Subaru. Subarus. Tucker. Right. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. The Tucker Torpedo. Tucker's another whole great. Tucker's a great story. It's how okay. Tucker was there was a bloke called Tucker, funnily enough, who created this incredible car in America in the late forties, early fifties, um, and basically the big three didn't like it, and so they just stuffed him. They absolutely stuffed him. There's a great film. I presume it's just called Tucker. I can't remember. It's got stars Jeff Bridges as this bloke, and it tells the whole story of what happened really really and it had a and it had a rear engine flat six in it what about the um chevy corvair that had a flat six in it too didn't it we're gonna have to do a little bit of reading up on this aren't we and report back next week yeah a bit of flat sixery yeah good stuff right okay we'll leave that one there lots of ferrari chat we won't leave it so long next time that was good um so there we go we've already told you about the app over the last week or so just go and download it go and download it start your one month free trial Um, and let us know what you think we think you'll like it Uh, and as ever we'll be back to talk to you again next week look forward to it thanks all mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 percent with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 